Hi, Steve. Hello. I thought a good way to talk about your approach to recording and your some of your techniques would be to discuss how they've changed over time. So maybe sure. if you could think back to like a typical session at your home studio in the kind of early years of that compared to now. Um, if you're thinking about things that have changed and stayed the same, maybe if we start with the drums, what was your kind of typical techniques back then and how they changed over time? When I first built a studio in my house, that would have been like 1986, something like that. Um, the, the studio that I was, like the home studio that I was working in was an eight track studio. That is half inch eight track tape with a 16 input mixer and a two track stereo mix down machine and very, very minimal outboard, um, small handful of microphones. So the initial brief was just to try to make competent recordings with that minimal set of equipment, you know? Um, and there are practical concerns. Like if you only have eight tracks to play with and you have a four piece band, you have to be judicious about allocating the tape tracks. So, <clears throat> um, I experimented with a number of different approaches, but the one that I settled on was that I would dedicate four tracks to the drums. Um, that is, there'd be a bass drum track, a snare drum track, and then a stereo track that would be everything else. The toms, the cymbals, the ambient microphones, if there were any. And then the rest of the tape, the other four tracks would be for everything else on the record. So if, for example, if there were two guitar players, a bass player and a vocalist, you were home free. If they wanted to add a backing vocal, well, then you needed to do some calculus and figure out how to do that how to you know you you might end up needing to not record the second guitar until after the backing vocalist was done and then you could bounce the vocal and the backing vocal onto the same channel and then then you could overdub that second guitar that sort of thing you know that or you could shrink the drum recording down to a smaller subset of those eight tracks so that that got me used to managing the resources of an analog session. Um, I think that was very good exercise for me. Just forcing me to make decisions about how I was going to do things on a technical basis prior to doing them in a, in a practical sense, like prior to executing a decision, you have to think about what you need to do. Uh, and then you have a, a, a platform and then you have like a, a basis to move forward. Uh, I think if I had come of age as a recording engineer during the digital era, when you're not faced with limitations like that, whereas you, you essentially have infinite tracks available, you have infinite channels available, you can do <clears throat> subordinate layers of things if you don't have tracking available on the mixer or whatever. I don't think I would have developed the kind of critical approach that I have um, and I think this is sort of the backbone of all analog engineers um, with respect to structuring a session is that you try to get it right before you record it rather than just record something and try to fiddle with it and then fiddle with it later until you're happy with it. Maybe you could talk about kind of, kind of specific techniques, um, like maybe if you start with drums, what was your kind of standard mm -hmm. recording techniques back then compared to and how they changed over time? Yeah, in the minimalist recording setup, I would have a single microphone for the bass drum, a microphone over the snare drum, and then a couple of mics as overheads, and then 
I fairly early on I started using top and bottom mics on the toms. That was owing to an experiment that I did with a drummer named Ray Washam. And he suggested that I try using a mic on the top and the bottom of the of a tom to capture the whole sound of it. So I started doing that fairly early. Um, then those mics would get bussed to whatever the tracking arrangement was. Like if it was a, you know, if I had four tracks available, then I'd make a stereo bus that had all of the, the toms and the overheads and the ambient microphones and then just individual tracks for the bass drum and snare drum. Now, when I have the luxury of multi-track recording, I'll separate the cymbals and the ambient microphones from the toms but i still do things like I'll, if there are two microphones on a tom for example i'll still bust that to a single channel on the tape machine so there'll be one track for the rack tom rather than having two separate tracks one for the top mic one for the bottom mic um and uh if there's a, a batter side microphone on the bass drum and a front side microphone I'll often still bust those together so there's a single track on the track sheet that says bass drum and that has both of those together. Um, on a 24 track session where there's a lot of space to, to deal with, I'll often separate the batter side microphone from the front microphone. Or if there's a top and bottom mic on the snare drum, I'll sometimes have those separate, but most likely I'll still combine all of that stuff the way I would have, you know, working in a more minimalist environment. Um, I find that leaves me more flexibility later with, by having more track space available to do more flexibility with the rest of the band. Right. Has anything changed much in terms of mic placement? Um, no, I know I have a better arsenal of microphones now. And I, I do also I try to interrogate my methods now and again uh, to make sure that I, I'm not getting stuck in a rut. There's one thing that I've adopted a couple of years ago, which was new to me, and I've sort of stuck with that, where um, for a long time, I, I didn't use overhead microphones for the cymbals on the drums. I just used the ambient microphones or the and the bleed on the other microphones to capture the cymbals. And, and the cymbals ended up being kind of less of a feature than they might have wanted to be in some records. So I started adding a stereo microphone in front of the drum kit um, and that sort of picked up the general stereo image of the drums, but it, because of its proximity, it tended to pick up quite a lot of the cymbal energy. And so that I was using that in place of an overhead microphone. And then I started adding overhead microphones to that signal so that you'd have a stereo signal that was basically the whole of the drum kit as a stereo image plus additional energy from the cymbals. And then a few years ago, I um, I was at a studio where the house drum kit for their studio had sort of mics in fixed positions. Uh, uh, it was like it was basically a, a hobby studio for somebody, and his setup was that he just had a pair of Coles forty thirty eight ribbon microphones on either side of the drum kit, sort of behind the drum kit at the drummer's where the drummer's head was and that was how he recorded drums for his sessions and out of curiosity because he'd been doing it for so long i thought well i'll just i'll try that and see what that sounds like and i i opened those mics and i thought it sounded great it was immediately a very nice presentation of the cymbals and so i i've adopted that and i started doing that i stole that from that poor guy um and so uh I've, I've recently started doing a thing where 
when I say recently, I mean the last few years, I'll have the overhead microphones for the drummer behind the drummer's head sort of looking laterally across at the array of cymbals rather than being a high overhead looking down at the cymbals. Um, and that, what I liked about it was that it, it sounded more reminiscent of, like if I was sitting at the drum kit playing the cymbals, that's where I would be hearing the cymbals from. And so that's this, the tonal quality of the cymbals would be more familiar. Uh, and you, you get less of the sort of gong sound of the planar movement of the cymbals, like sort of pulsing up and down or the occasionally when the cymbals, when the mics are overhead and the cymbals are swinging because the dude is really twatting them, then you get this phasing effect or sort of swooshing effect of the movement, physical movement of the cymbals against the microphones. And this seems to alleviate that. Like when the microphones were slightly more of a distance and looking more laterally across the cymbals, you get less of that effect of the cymbals sort of moving in and out of the frame. So, um, yeah, I've adopted that recently and the particular type of microphones that I use for various things like the snare drum or the bass drum that's evolved a lot over time I became very fond of this Bayer 380 microphone on the bass drum um, I now tend to use that uh, an awful lot whereas previously I used all manner of things the Electro Voice RE20 the AKG D112 um, yeah you know, I'd used all manner of things on the bass drum prior to that, but I, I've kind of standardized on the Bayer 380. I think it really is uniquely suited to working inside a bass drum. Um, yeah, a few, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I started adding a microphone on the batter side of the bass drum to pick up the attack component of the bass drum, the beater, you know, the physical spot where the, the beater hits the head. I put a microphone as close to that as I can, and I, I tend to use that as an attack element on the bass drum rather than trying to brighten the bass drum up with an EQ or something like that in order to exaggerate the attack. It's nice to be able to have those two components separate, the sort of meat of the bass drum and then the attack component. I was going to ask about your use of kind of miniature condensers in general, because I think I've seen you use them kind of by the bridges of acoustic guitars and things like that as well. Yeah. When was that something that you started experimenting with? And do you have any other kind of uses for them? Um, I find them very useful in a lot of circumstances. Like you can physically mount them to a, uh, you can physically mount them to something and that, that way you don't have like a big armature impeding the performance. Like um, they're very useful in things like frame drums, hand drums, baran, that sort of thing. You can mount the microphone inside the drum so that it's getting a very close signal of the strike of the, the beater. Um, and it provides some isolation from the rest of the band if the rest of the band is playing around him. Um, acoustic guitar is, is a good one because uh, in, a, in a, a group setting, for example, sometimes you'll have electric instruments which can be quite loud and an acoustic instrument like a guitar, and you may not have the facility to physically isolate the acoustic guitar from the electric instruments or from the drum set or whatever. So if you can get any degree of isolation, it helps. And putting the microphones directly on the guitar so they're very close to the strings gives you a lot of isolation. Sometimes the sound quality there is a little harsh, um, but it's a, it, you know it's always a trade-off. You're you're you know you you have several options for which problem you want to favor but you're always going to have a problem yeah 
So maybe going back to drums quickly, um, could you talk about your favorite snare mics over time and how that's changed? Yeah, when I first started making records, uh, I had a very small collection of microphones and I would just go back and forth between all of them, listening to them. And I, you know, I was able to make some decisions fairly early and that it turns out that I, I didn't like the standard choices for snare drum microphone. Um, dynamic microphones have been the standard for years on snare drums. And essentially every time I tried using a dynamic mic on the snare drum, I thought it sounded kind of hollow or not full bodied enough. My first attempt at um, alleviating that was to use a small condenser microphone in parallel with a dynamic microphone. Like I, I had a, um, a Bayer 201 as a dynamic microphone with a, a Shure SM98 as a condenser microphone and had the diaphragms aligned. And I would use that pair as a s single microphone. Um, that, that is, I would take the outputs of those two microphones and sum them together in the desk and send them through a bus and use that as a signal. And I was quite satisfied with that for a while. Uh, and then I found there's a small tube microphone made by the Altec company called the 175. And the, those Altec microphones can handle very high signal level and the low frequency response of those mics is great. And I felt like that was a, a, a very nice, very full bodied sound on the snare drum. I started using those mics a lot. Um, I also found there's a, a Sony microphone called the C37P, which is a, the transistor version of their C37 tube mic. And the C37P sounds great on snare drums, got a lot of low end, um, you know, very nice sort of, it's not a super aggressive mic in the high end, but it's got a very meaty sound, very thick low end. And then recently I found these Octava MK012 microphones. They're cheap as chips, as they say in England, but they're fantastic sounding on a snare drum. They're, uh, and I understand that they vary a lot in sound quality from example to example, but the thing that that makes them stand out is that the low frequency response is very solid um, and they're they're bright enough to get enough detail off the snare drum but the low frequency response really helps with the sort of solidness or the heaviness of a snare drum yeah i actually bought one of those octava mics recently because i've seen you using them on snare having yeah. good results so far yeah i think they sound great you should be aware that the I don't know if this is true of all of them, but but the ones that we have in the studio, <clears throat> the uh, output of that microphone is 180 degrees uh, opposite polarity from other microphones. Like if you have that mic paired with another microphone, you'll find that the polarity of it is opposite. Yeah, I've had the same experience, so I think it's pretty universal. I know that there are different versions of those mics. You know, there are some that were made in Russia, some that were made in China, and some that have been modified. So. I don't want to speak with authority about those mics, but yeah. So maybe moving on to other instruments. I know we touched on acoustic guitar. Do you have any other kind of standard techniques that have changed over time or stayed the same? I quite like recording acoustic guitar in stereo. Um, I feel like it, the vividness of being in front of an acoustic guitar, you can replicate that somewhat by using a stereo image and you can get the stereo image in a lot of ways. Like if you have two microphones, mounted to the top of the guitar, one under the bass side strings, one under the treble side strings, then that gives you a natural stereo effect with each strum. Or you can use a crossed cardioid or cross figure eight pair in front of the drum, in front of the um, guitar 
sort of with the center of the stereo image on the strumming hand. Uh, and that gives you a bit of a stereo image as well. Like the, the bridge side is on one side, the neck side is on the other, and you do get a kind of a, a swaying effect when the as he's moving while he's playing. Um, I found those stereo effects, the, the acoustic stereo effect is quite nice with an acoustic guitar. Do you use mid-side much? Yeah, we have a um, mid-side processor that Greg Norman, our chief engineer, designed. And we use that a lot, uh, both in front of the drum kit and over the piano. I don't tend to use it that much in front of acoustic guitar, just <clears throat> um, because an acoustic guitar by itself, you can typically position the microphone carefully enough where you don't, you don't have to adjust it that much from the control room. Yeah. But um, I use it for small ensemble stuff quite a lot. Like if I have a bluegrass ensemble or a string quartet or something like that, um, then I'll often have the stereo microphone in MS and I'll use the, and I'll sit in the control room and I'll adjust the stereo image until it sounds nice and is flattering to that group. So moving on to electric guitar, I know these days you quite often use two mics kind of slightly further mm -hmm. away from the amp. Is that how it's always yeah. been or has it changed? Uh, I think when I first started like everybody else i didn't you know i was still sort of finding my sea legs and so I, I did what i saw everybody else do which was to take a dynamic microphone and cram it right up next to the speaker um and then i i was sort of immediately unsatisfied with that and i started experimenting when you have a studio at home and you have a, all your friends are in are musicians in bands you have a lot of avenues for experimentation so you can try a lot of things at no cost you can you fuck around with a lot of different stuff and so i tried a series of experiments where i moved microphones in and out and different microphones and different positions and i very quickly settled on a preference which is that the microphone is generally sounds best sort of dead center on the speaker and it generally sounds best a foot or so sometimes 14 18 inches away then it sounds better there than it does jammed right up on top of the speaker um, you can get a very stylized sound if you put the microphone very close to the speaker. You can get, um, you know, a more brittle or more aggressive sound or a sound with exaggerated low end or whatever. But just using as a basis, when you, when someone's playing the guitar and listening to it in person and then coming upstairs to the studio, to the control room to listen to it on playback, which of them was more accurate, I, I tended to to prefer and it also seemed to be more accurate in, at, from a listening standpoint I tended to prefer the microphone a little farther from the speaker and sort of dead center on the speaker now sometimes in, in certain situations you want to exaggerate or, or abstract the sound and all bets are off in that case like if you want a freakish sound you should do whatever it takes to make your sound freakish Yeah, has your experience been the same with bass too over time not really that's that, that that's not true for bass and it surprised me that it wasn't but we did the same set of experiments i did a, a similar set of experiments over time with bass guitar and i found that the proximity effect of the microphone being very close to the speaker cabinet extends the low frequency response of essentially all microphones and that tends to sound heavier tends to sound more like a bass guitar that is it tends to uh, flatter the low frequencies more than having the microphone backed off the speaker. Now and again, you run into a bass guitar player who has a very bright, very aggressive sound. 
and they that sound tends to be treated more like a guitar in the context of the music um or there'll be a baritone instrument that's sort of midway between the guitar and the bass and uh in those cases you have to be prepared to that your presumptions are incorrect you know you may you may end up needing to do something totally different yeah do you use the di signal much it's rare that i would take a di signal from the bass um in preference over using the mic signal over the amplifier off the amplifier the exception would be when the bass player says this is what i always do with my bass i always take a direct signal from here and i always like it in that case i'm happy to do whatever you know if somebody has experience with their own instrument and they have a preference i prefer to indulge that preference you know um if it's a situation where they're coming to me and they have no preference then i typically record the sound coming off the amplifier because that's what they'd be hearing in you know in practice or on stage or in real life it's so moving on to piano um upright and grand have you had any kind of go-to techniques over time that have changed or stayed the same yeah well for small pianos like a spinet or um a, an upright piano like a parlor piano um i find those the soundboard below the keyboard tends to have more bass energy than uh, I've seen a lot of people just open the top of the piano and stick the microphones in the top. Um, I tend to use the microphones in, microphones in front of the soundboard below the keyboard of the of a of a spinet or an upright piano. Um, and if there's not enough brightness, that is, if there's not enough attack then I'll stick a microphone in, uh, um, open the top window and stick a microphone up in the top as well. For grand pianos, baby grands, like big, like normal horizontal harp type pianos, uh, I tend to prefer for solo piano, I tend to prefer a stereo recording using an MS technique or Bloomline technique with a, a, a wide bandwidth stereo microphone out in front of the open piano, like uh, sort of looking in on the harp, but outside of the piano. And for a piano overdub or, or piano that's an element of a band where the piano is like, you know, it's a band that incorporates a piano rather than a, a, a piano that's being played as a solo instrument. Um, I tend to prefer the sound of the piano with the microphones overhead so that they can hit, get a clearer, harder attack from the hammers. Um, for classical piano recording where the the there's going to be wide dynamics but you're not as concerned about making the attacks uh of each note uh sort of fight their way through a dense mix balance then i tend to prefer a slightly more distant slightly more ambient uh slightly softer stereo image whereas the mics overhead immediately over the, the hammers can can be a very bright very aggressive sound and that makes it easier for that sound to like project through a dense mix of a whole band do you have any problems with foot noise using those mics kind of under the under the um uh i've found that like on a spinet piano for example or, or an upright piano the the pedals operate differently than they do on a grand piano like the the dampener pedal the muting pedal it um on an up on a grand piano that pedal moves the entire hammer box so that the hammers are hitting fewer strings it makes it quieter right in a spinet piano what that does typically is that it just moves a damper 
uh, like a piece of fabric in front of the hammers so the hammers aren't hitting as hard. So it tends to be very quiet. That movement tends to be quiet. Whereas the on a grand piano, the, the lever that moves the whole hammer box tends to be, can, that can be quite a noisy sound, you know. Uh, the same with the sustain pedal, like the sustain pedal on a, on a grand piano has to work over a longer physical distance. So the linkage has got more leverage and there's more parts and it's lifting this big body, uh, you know, lifting all of these dampers. So that tends to be a noisier pedal than the small spinet pianos. I guess moving on to vocals, and I've seen you these days kind of bust the room sound of the vocals in with the vocals for the mixing. Is that something you've always done? Um, it depends. If it's a 24-track session where there's a lot of open real estate on the reel, then I'll often keep the ambient microphone separate from the close microphone uh, for the sake, for a number of reasons. One, so that you can adjust the balance more carefully, and but mainly so that you can use it as a stereo effect, so that you can pan the ambient microphone off to one side, so that when the vocalist gets really energetic, you, the stereo image kind of widens slightly. Um, that's a that's a very nice effect, and and I I have, you know, when it's possible to keep the ambient microphone separate, I think I prefer that. But I would I would say I'm, I'm doing sixty or seventy percent of the sessions that I do now are on sixteen track, um, where it's just you know a combo band with a minimal uh, set of overdubs, um, and in that and in that environment you don't have as many tracks to play with, and so I tend to. Uh, combine the ambient microphone with the close microphone uh, if there is one and there doesn't always you know there isn't always an ambient microphone if it's a if the vocalist doesn't like the ambient effect or if they want a very dry sound or if they just want to be able to stylize the vocal later with you know distortion and echoes and stuff as as in post-production effects well then there's no advantage to having an ambient microphone so i, I wouldn't bother um but yeah, if I can, I'd like to keep the ambient microphone separate. What are your favorite mics for uh, kind of the ambient vocal sound? Um, I like wide bandwidth condenser microphones. Uh, so I tend to use, we have these Josephson microphones, the C617. Those would be the same mics that I would use over the piano if I was recording the piano. Um, uh, I think the DPA microphones, the, the Brulinger mics, those sound great. Um, any of the small diaphragm Omni condenser microphones um, by Sheps, those sound really good as ambient mics or room mics. Altec made a number of really good sounding amb um, omnidirectional microphones. The 150 uh, Coke bottle microphones, those sound great as room mics. A really great low frequency response, and that's a big goes a long way toward um, sort of exaggerating the sense of depth or distance in an ambient microphone as having good low frequency response. Have the rooms you've worked in over the years changed your kind of techniques a lot? Well, you have to be sensitive to the environment you're in, regardless of where it is. Like um, when I was working in a less professional studio, like the home studio that I had, the basement of that house was the recording environment. And, and uh, because it was a normal residential neighborhood, there would be occasional traffic noises or the sound of the garbage trucks or whatever. And uh, so you just have to work around that. So if the neighbors are mowing the lawn, they're mowing the lawn and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. Um, 
but in a once we built electrical, um, we've had very very little that I had to concern myself with. Occasionally, there will be an extremely noisy construction scene in the neighborhood, or um, you know, like if there's a if there's some commotion, like a big truck making a delivery, or there's a crane working on the phone poles or something like that. Just normal urban noises. Um, very, very rarely those can impinge on the sessions, but most of the time, um, I don't really have that much to worry about here. I do make records in other studios and sometimes those other studios are, uh, maybe less bulletproof than electrical in that regard. So you, you have to work around the ambient noises. Yeah. Well, uh, acoustically, have you ever noticed kind of any of your standard mic techniques not work in certain types of rooms, like very dead rooms or very, very live rooms? The places where I've had the most trouble actually have been in professionally designed studios where all of the character, all of the acoustics and all the character of the rooms has been designed out. Like there was a trend in the 70s and the 80s to make studio environments extremely neutral. And I, I say extremely neutral knowing that that doesn't have any, that doesn't make literal sense. But um even in a room that was that looked like it should be reverberant and lively, if you stomp and clap your hands and whistle, it seems like the sound wasn't like the room wasn't participating in the sound. They designed it in such a way that the reflected energy was being muted um, or being directed away from where you were. And I find those environments very difficult to work in just because the the room doesn't allow you to benefit from whatever acoustic. Be- energy is in it you're being sort of prevented from using this reflected sound uh and i i like being able to use the sound of the environment in addition to the close-up sound of the instruments whether it's a guitar or drum set or a vocalist you know we're sort of psychoacoustically we're all trained to appreciate the environment that we're in when we're listening to something like when you hear something happen you're hearing it happen in context of a physical space and so your brain expects to hear these kind of ambient cues about what you know okay this event is happening what what do we know about the space that the event is occurring in and in a really dead really neutral really dry studio you're being deprived of all that information and so um you you know the sounds can sound unnatural or harsh or alien with delaying your room mics was that something that someone else taught you or did it you kind of figure out yourself yeah i was at working at a studio called studio media and an engineer there named sam fishkin um i saw that i had an ambient microphone in out in in front of something i can't remember what it was maybe a drum kit and he said have you ever tried delaying the room mic and i said no why would i do that and he said well it's it pushes the walls back and I, I didn't, didn't really know what he meant. Uh, but he was a good engineer. And so I he thought, you know, he gave me, uh, you know, the, some free advice. I should give it a shot. And I tried delaying the room mics by a few milliseconds and it instantly sounded better to me. So it instantly sounded more natural, more like my sense memory of the sound in the room. And, uh, so I, been experimenting with it ever since and that would have been in the in the mid 80s when that happened um what surprises me most about that is that the delayed ambient microphone sounds more natural to my ear than the ambient microphone without the delay 
and that there's a dissonance there that bothered me on just on an intellectual level it bothered me that i was doing an artificial thing but it sounded more natural how is that possible right and then i started the, the more I thought about it, I think, I don't have any science to back this up, but I think that what the effect that I'm noticing is that the ambient sound that you experience in a room, if I'm sitting, let's say I'm sitting at the piano or I'm sitting at the drums and I'm, and I'm playing, then the sound propagates away from me and hits those side walls, reflects off those walls, turns around, comes back to me. And... So I'm hearing that ambient sound at an acoustic delay that's an, a measurable amount. Like you could calculate that amount or you could just measure it. But let's say that the walls are 10 or 15 feet away. So I'm hearing an acoustic delay of between 20 and 30 milliseconds because this, the sound has to go out to the wall, hit the wall, reflect off the wall and come back. And that round trip delay time is going to be in the range of 20 to 30 milliseconds in a room where I'm 10 to 15 feet away from the walls, right? But if I put a microphone in that room, even at some distance from the drums, if the, the acoustic delay is never going to be as much as I would hear acoustically in the room, because that microphone, even if the microphone is as far away as I can make it, if I put it 10 feet away, it's, there's only going to be about a 10 millisecond delay before the sound hits that microphone from where where i'm sitting so um there it turns out i've discovered that there was that this is a known effect um and that is the haas effect which is the um when an an echo arrives too early your brain cannot resolve it as a separate sound and it perceives it as a muddying of the of the sound rather than an ambient cue and that Haas period, the, the amount of time that it takes for that delay to be noticeable as an echo, is different for every person. But it's in that region that I just described, in the 20 to 30 millisecond region, um, that's when your brain starts to be able to recognize the sound as an ambient sound. So if I take that microphone that's got an acoustic delay of 10 milliseconds, and I add an additional 10 or 20 milliseconds to it, then I am recreating the natural acoustic delay that a person in that room, in that environment, would hear. Uh, and so I'm, I'm synthesizing the extra delay that has been, that you're not allowed to hear. Uh, and once I once I realized that's what what was probably happening, I felt okay about it. But up until then, I was always there was always a, a very slight bit of engineering guilt that I was doing this artificial thing to somebody's record, and I had just somehow tricked myself into thinking that it was better. But um, I think I think what I'm saying explains why I prefer it. So I know you're kind of standard. Uh, drum making technique is to use quite a lot of microphones. Can you think yep. back to a session where you used the, the least amount of microphones on a full drum kit? Yeah, I've actually, I mean, there are some settings where you're forced to use a minimalist technique. Like um, uh, I did a record with a band called Plush. Uh, the record's called More You Becomes You. And, oh no, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, 
I, I worked on that record as well, but there's a, an album called Fed where um, a lot of the sessions were done on location, like in a theater or on a film stage or on a rooftop, that sort of thing. And so I was expected to bring a very minimal set of microphones to record everything. Um, so that's that's one scenario. Um, <clears throat> I've also done records. There's a re an album I did with a, a band called The Sadies. And uh, they're a Canadian, largely instrumental band, although there was singing on some of their songs. Um, they're a Canadian band with a lot of um, instrumental influences, let's put it that way. They had like um, Western instrumental and some surf instrumental and cocktail music influences. And that record was recorded very simply in a cabin out in the woods in northern Ontario. So um, I had to bring a minimal set of equipment with me there. And I'm, I was very happy with the way that recording came out and the drums there were recorded with a total of three microphones. There was a, a microphone in front of the bass drum. Then there was a microphone near the floor tom and another microphone near the rack tom. Um, and that provided the stereo information for the drum kit. Um, there wasn't a dedicated snare mic. There wasn't dedicated cymbal microphones. There weren't dedicated ambient microphones. It was just those three mics for the whole setup. And I thought it sounded great. It ended up sounding terrific. Um, so You're about to ask me about the Glenn Johns technique, aren't you? I, I thought about it, but I, didn't, I wasn't going to yeah. go there. I don't actually know what the Glenn Johns technique is. I know that other people use it and have had good results, so I have to trust that they know what they're talking about. So I've been watching a documentary about uh, Magnolia Electric Company, the Josephine yeah. album. Um, there were some of the techniques in that I wanted to ask you about. I think uh, Jason was using a, you know, using a 421 of vocals, but I couldn't see any headphones yeah. anywhere. So were you using a vocal monitor for everyone to yeah, hear there? Yeah, he had a small monitor at his feet that was fed from that microphone through the desk um, that there was a small monitor at his feet that was projecting the vocal back at him. Like the same as in a gig, it was also slightly exciting the room. So you can hear a little bit of an ambient character on the vocal from that. Um, uh, and yeah, that was a, his normal method was to sing and play simultaneously with the band playing around him. And on the Magnolia Electric Company album and on the Josephine album and on basically all the sessions that I did um, with Jason, that's how he wanted to conduct them. He wanted to sort of sing and lead the band uh, simultaneous with the recording. And then uh, in a lot of cases, there, were, there was an extemporaneous element to the arrangement. Like he would decide sort of at the capriciously just decide to make a, an instrumental section longer so he'd be able to like wave everybody on to do it again or whatever so um yeah that was a you know there are a number of people that i've worked with that prefer to do things that way they like robbie folks is another one he's a country and western singer i've done a bunch of records with him he prefers to sing with the band as a live vocal take um and it's rare for him not to be happy uh with the vocal once it's finished or um occasionally he'll drop in and repair something or occasionally we'll use multiple take do multiple takes and then splice them together but it's most of the time he does a good vocal take during an instrumental version that he's happy with um and 
that ends up being the final vocal. There's a singer named Nina Nastasia who's very much in the same vein. Like she likes to sing and sort of lead the band from where she is. Um, and so her her vocals are on essentially all of her records. Her vocals are are recorded while she's performing with the band. Yeah. And also I was going to ask, and I think this touches on something we already discussed, was that I couldn't see any overheads for the drums on that recording. I think there mm. was just uh, one of the Josephson mics on the uh, ride. I was going to ask, is that something that you do a lot um, these days for kind of just close mics? Uh, no, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a stereo microphone somewhere, right. maybe out of frame, um, like a stereo microphone picking up the stereo image of the drums. It would be unusual for me to use just close mics. It wouldn't be unusual for me to use just a stereo microphone. Right. I mean, that would be le- that would be less unusual for me. I wanted to ask you more about the 421 as well because I personally mm. haven't had much success with that mic. Um, what are your kind of some of your favorite uses? And well, I found <clears throat> there there are some some vocalists who prefer the sound. The, the 421 has a fairly aggressive sound like the high end is fairly spiky and by spiky i mean it's a bright microphone but the high frequency response is non-linear there are big peaks and dips in the response so when you put it on a guitar cabinet for example it can be very aggressive sounding but but it can exaggerate a portion of the spectrum that sounds like piercing and unpleasant um i found that it works works well in situations where the aggressive nature is more important than the specific frequency response, like where you want to have a very aggressive sound, but it doesn't need to be subtle or finely tuned. There are some vocalists who have sung into a 421 and for whatever reason, the peaks in that response match up well with their voice. Um, Another person that sings into a 421 often is Kim Deal from The Breeders. her voice is quite, she generally has a quite smooth voice, but occasionally she breaks into a more raspy, sort of rockier delivery, and the 421 does flatter her voice somewhat. Uh, she sings, she also likes an SM7, a mic I'm sure you're familiar with, <clears throat> and she tends to, She and she also has a very nice for uh, Neumann U47 that she travels with when she's recording, and that microphone between the three of those, there's almost always a mic that sounds good for Kim Deal's voice because she has a terrific singing voice and it's it's kind of indestructible. Like it never really sounds bad, but those microphones tend to emphasize or flatter regions of her voice frequency range that are are quite nice. Now I should say that the 421 has changed in construction several times, and uh, I've found for my uses that the 421 that's available as current production does not sound as good as the 421s that were available for the first 20 or 30 years of production. And they're easy to distinguish. The The modern ones, the more contemporary ones, have a, a there's a rotating roll-off switch on the base of the microphone. If that roll-off switch is made of a black plastic, then that's a more modern microphone, doesn't sound that good. If it's a two-tone metal and black, uh, metal and black plastic knurled knob, then that's an older one, and those tend to sound better, in my opinion. And I can't really articulate what I mean by better. Right. Do you use the four four one much? We use four forty ones a lot. I use them 
they're very useful in, a, in an odd, kind of an odd application. As the communications mic or a talkback mic in a noisy setting, they have very good rejection to the sides and rear. So if you have a, a guide vocal mic or a talkback microphone in front of a guitar player and there's a bunch of amplifiers in the room blowing guitar at that microphone, you can still get a quite usable signal off of that microphone, even with all the noise around it. So they're very good at rejecting ambient noise. Um, they sound pretty good as an aggressive guitar microphone, like on a, you know, if you want to have a ripping 70s guitar sound, um, that's a good choice a lot, of, a lot of the time. I want to talk about how you kind of choose a vocal mic as well. I mean, obviously, kind of the situation... And what else is being recorded at the same time makes a difference. But um, yeah. what are the kind of certain qualities that you uh, hear in people's voices that make you choose different microphones? Um, it has more to do with the setting of the music, really. Um, if the if the vocal is meant to be very forward and very dry, very either very aggressive or very intimate, um, then you'll want to record the vocal in a way that captures all the detail either of the aggression or of the intimacy. So I tend to tend to use brighter microphones there, microphones that have very clear high frequency extension and tend to record the vocal in a dry environment then if the vocal is meant to be either very dry or very very intimate or very aggressive then I'll tend to record the vocal very close up using a bright microphone in a dry environment. If there's a lot of drama that is a lot of swooping up and down in intensity and a lot of um, a wide range in performance and emotional range, then I'll tend to record the vocal in a larger room with an ambient microphone because then that drama, the effect of going from quiet to loud is slightly exaggerated by the ambient sound in the room. And it gives the listener a little bit more of a psychoacoustic clue that there's an increase in intensity because you can hear the person gets loud and it excites the room and you can hear the ambient signal. Um, and in that case, um, you'll, I, I tend to use a microphone that can suffer a, a wider range of uh, performance distances because in the intimate bits, the vocalist is going to scoot in close and in the shouty bits, the vocalist is probably going to move away. I, I normally don't tell people to do that. I normally ask people to just sing normally but it's a kind of a natural performance thing for a lot of performers when they're going to really belt it out. They sort of crane their necks and belt it out into the room rather than belting it, leaning into the microphone and belting it into the microphone. That's just a normal uh, performance variation that people execute. So try to accommodate that, make sure that it's not a narrow pattern on the microphone where if they move their heads a little bit, it's going to disappear, that sort of thing. And I know you've had a lot of success with the uh, E22 microphone with David Josephson. Do you have any other kind of plans to design the other mics? And if not, um, are there any other ones that you're kind of thinking about that you'd like to exist that don't? There is one very specific thing that I've been curious about for years. Um, in the sort of boutique hi-fi realm, there is a, a great affection for very small triode powered amplifiers um, with respect to reproducing human voice, like solo opera or like opera, solo vocalist, singer songwriter type stuff 
the intimate portrayal of the human voice, all the snobby hi-fi people really like these directly heated, small triode powered amplifiers, like a couple of watts with a very efficient speaker that, you know, there, there is evidence that, that that's a, a very flattering electronic circuit and electronic, very, very flattering way for a, a, the human voice to be reproduced, right? I've been curious for years to hear what a directly heated triode tube vocal microphone would sound like. Now, there are, there's a very small number of tubes that would be uh, candidates for this, and they're all archaic. They're all like very old designs that, you know, you would need to source these vacuum tubes from old radio sets or whatever. There's a very small number of tubes that would be candidates for it, and some of them might, that, that seem like they're candidates, might not be, have reasonable noise performance or might not be usable for what other or whatever other reasons but i would love to hear the sound of a vocal microphone that uses these vacuum tubes the specific design of vacuum tubes a directly heated triode which have been found to be so flattering and found such favor in the hi-fi community i'd be very curious to hear that that is a vocal microphone that uses a directly heated triode as its uh, amplifier but other than that i mean I really feel like the I feel like the subject is pretty well covered. Like microphones got very good very quickly. Like there were some fantastic microphones that were made in the 30s and 40s that really you can't do better. Like you really cannot get a better vocal microphone than some of the Neumann tube microphones that were designed in the 40s. And you know, as far as ribbon microphones, like they're the very best sounding ribbon microphones are currently being made. But it's a technology that was developed a long ass time ago, like 50 or more years ago. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the modern iterations of those of that design are, are outstanding, but they were very, very, very good very early. So I feel like the microphones as a as a topic, you know, there's not that much unexplored territory. You know, there's not a not a whole unex, unexplored continent of microphones that's yet to be made. I've heard you say you only kind of want to keep versatile gear at your studio that kind of proves its use. Is there any kind of yeah. weird esoteric things that you have that you kind of can't bear to get rid of? Oh, we have a, there's a lot of weird one-off type things that I have some that I have a perverse fondness for. There's a in Studio B there's a um, a pitch change device that was a very crude early harmonizer. It was made by the MXR company. It was called the Pitch Transposer. And it was made famous in the 70s because it was the first thing that could really abstract a sound. Uh, so in the 70s, whenever there was a horror film and someone was possessed by the devil or possessed by Satan, their voice would get all weird. And the, this device was what was used like kind of religiously, if you pardon the pun, to make people sound like they were possessed by Satan. And so it it got the nickname the Satanizer. And so we have a Satanizer, and I quite lo quite like the Satanizer for you know a number of absurd reasons. Uh, but it is also it is it's useful in a sort of general context. But um, I'm very fond of the fact that it has this legacy of being the device that made people sound like Satan. Right. I also heard heard you say before that you try to do something new on every recording session that you do. Is that still yeah. true? 
Yeah, and it's when I say do something new, it doesn't have to be something groundbreaking. It's just I try to find an excuse to do one little thing differently on every session. And it can be something very simple, like a positioning of a microphone or a different choice of microphone or, you know, a, a, a slight modification of a signal path or using a different device to perform the same function. And what I found enlightening about that is that even things that don't work teach me something about the limitations of the equipment that I'm using. And experiments that do work sort of broaden my vocabulary and broaden my arsenal. And, and they can be very small incremental changes, but I still think they're worth pursuing. I wanted to ask you about the um, Joanna Newsom record that you worked on. Was her vocal mm -hmm. recorded live with her harp playing? For about 70% of the songs, the singing and playing were done simultaneously. For about 30% of the songs, she would play the piece and then do multiple vocal takes. And we'd make a composite of her vocal of all the different takes that she liked. But for a solid 70%, she was singing and playing simultaneously. Now, even then, even in a scenario where she's singing and playing simultaneously, we would often make a composite where we would, she would do several takes and then we would assemble... Uh, a master take that had the best parts of the performances that she'd done. But often enough, she would just sit down and just plop down and sing and play the whole thing in one go. And that would be it. She's an astonishing musician. Joanna Newsom is one of the most talented people I've ever encountered in any field. And she has a mastery of her, vo you know, her approach to the harp and her singing with the harp is utterly unique. And she is an absolute control of the of that performance at all times. Like I I I, I just admire her, her to the end of the world. I think she's an absolutely stunning musician, absolutely genius with respect to the way she's created a new idiom for herself. Like the way her her music doesn't function the way anybody else's music functions. The the sort of song forms that other people use. Are really are really not related to her music. Her music tends to move in a very linear fashion, without being repetitive, without making reference to sort of traditional form. I'm I'm extremely impressed by my every interaction with Joanna Newsom. Do you remember what uh, vocal mics and harp mics you were using for that to get enough rejection? The harp microphone technique was a, a number of these small condenser microphones i think i was using glm the crown glm 100s i had i remember having four of those up the length of the harp going from the bass end to the treble end um and then ah uh, i don't remember precisely which microphone she was singing into i think a lot of the time she was singing into a russian microphone called the lomo 1913 and that microphone has reasonably good rejection to the sides and i think that was because i think i think i used that microphone because it's fairly small and it was easy enough to get in as a boom to get it close to her mouth and the rejection to the sides meant that she wasn't uh it wasn't exaggerating the harp um, her voice as just as a, as a matter of 
practicality was quite loud in the harp microphones at the treble end of her harp because she was physically very close to those microphones. Um, so I think, but I don't recall, I think I, I, I recall doing this in at least one, sin- one instance where I had to sort of learn the arrangement so that when she was going to go up high on the harp, I would open those microphones into the bus. But when she was just singing and wasn't playing up high on the harp, then I would kill those microphones. That I recall doing that, but I don't recall doing that for every song. I know that record was mixed by um, Jim O'Rourke as well. If you had any yep. other musical experiences with him, he's one of my oh, favorite. Yeah, he's a good friend. I've known Jim for a very long time. Um, I recorded him a bunch of times uh, as a musician, and he's worked on other records that I've worked on. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's a unique musical thinker, and I, he's a terrific guitar player. And uh, I especially like how he does a lot of things... Uh, structurally in when he's working on on a piece of music he does a lot of things to create problems for himself which then through problem solving end up becoming uh you know broadening his experience and making him a better musician making him a better producer um i know and i don't know how much of his like moving to japan and having to learn japanese and having to reintegrate himself into a new setting i don't know how much of that was one of these uh, intentional problems and how much of that was just him having an affinity for Japan and wanting to be there. Um, but it, I mean, that's a kind of a parallel with the way he's always approached music. Like uh, he'll get comfortable, he'll, he'll become an expert at something and he'll get comfortable with it. And then he'll force himself to break away from that and do something else that's slightly alien and make himself, you know, to, to give himself a problem to solve. Um, I wanted to ask about the, uh, the Sun Life Metal record that you did last yeah. year. The guitars on that have a huge amount of low end. Were there any particular kind of techniques yeah. that you uh, did for that record, especially? Uh, it sounds like I'm ducking the question, but no. You know, uh, you, uh, whenever you whenever you listen to an electric guitar, you evaluate it based on its spectrum. Like, is this is there a lot of low end? Is there a lot of high end? What's the most important part of it? You know, their their music is all of a type, and it's typically very heavy riffs where the fundamental is very important. So, uh, you know, you need microphones with good bass, bass response and extension, but there is a lot of high frequency detail and often their systems are quite complex. Like often they'll have half a dozen amplifiers and play per guitar. So the main concerns there are maintaining the phase relationship between the signals and the microphones. Like if you have, six cabinets and six amplifiers and six microphones, it's very easy for one or the other of them to fall out of phase and start subtracting sound and start actually causing an interference. So you, you know, you, you work on smaller subsets of the, of the arrangement, like, all right, let me hear these two amplifiers together. And then you align those microphones so that they're reinforcing each other. And then you work, move to the next microphone and move to the next microphone, move to the next microphone. And then eventually you have the whole system working correctly and supporting itself as opposed to working subtractively and defeating some of the some of the sound you know but it's a bit of a process the sound checks considering that it's only a couple of instruments the sound checks can take a very long time i think that's all my questions so thanks so much for talking with me thanks for having me